Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. We have something a little different for you this week. On November 8th in New York City, Slate hosted an event called The People vs. Trump, Year One. It was a look at the year since Trump's election and all that's happened and all that hasn't. I interviewed Jelani Cobb, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and we talked about the year in racism and Trump's demagogic appeal. Here is that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So, um, Jelani, we have uh, 15 minutes to tackle the subject of race in America. I think we can do it. We, be, we need eight tops. Uh, so the first question I wanted to ask you was, you know, Trump has been president for about 10 months now, and I don't think the person he is or his his feelings on racial issues has surprised anyone given given the mm-hmm. campaign, given the transition. But when you look at America racially 10 months into the administration, does anything surprise you? Is anything different than you think um, going in given the campaign Trump ran? Uh yeah, one thing that surprises me is like the kind of never-ending reservoir of good faith that people have about Donald Trump. <laughs> like they're always first they were the pivots, you know, like like there's always a pivot. There's one to pivot. He's going to change and so on. And I was like, you have NBA forwards who don't pivot that much, you know. <laughs> um, and so there was the idea that this was going to happen. Uh, and and then there are these kinds of things. Even Bob Corker, you know, has come out and been critical of him. The the route that he took to that criticism, we said, oh, he's not really evolving and learning. He's not growing into the role. But Trump, to his credit, never gave them any reason to think that he was going to evolve. <laughs> he was who he said he was. And if they'd been familiar or familiarized themselves with his track record, they would have said, this is not a character that's going to become something other than what he is. Uh, and so while it's good to see that there are people who are beginning to break from the pack and say, uh, we have a real problem here, that problem was apparent from the opening, from the, from the moment he began his campaign referring to Mexicans as rapists. And and just what about where the country is after having this guy as president for 10 months in mm-hmm. terms of racial issues and racial dynamics? Well, I mean, I think it's it's kind of um, obvious. Like We have the parameters of the conversation have expanded such that that white nationalism is actually part of the dialogue now. And so we actually have to countenance what these people who would traditionally have been thought of as fringe, what they think and what their uh, beliefs are and what their uh, political agenda is. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, too. A woman said to me um, the morning after the election, uh, so a year ago minus a day, and I was on a flight coming from North Carolina uh, where I had been writing about voter suppression there. And there were two women sitting behind me, uh, and they were bawling, just sobbing. And they're both uh, white women in maybe their 40s. I get into a conversation with them. And, you know, one of them, it turns out that both of them have children with developmental disabilities. They didn't know each other. Uh, but then they just got into a conversation and realized that they were both terrified at what kind of bullying had been legitimized by the fact that someone had been able to ridicule a reporter with a disability and still be elected president of the United States. And uh, in the course of our conversation, she said, one of the things that has remained one of the most germane criticisms, I think, of, of or explanations for the Trump phenomenon And she said, I'm a teacher, and this is fundamentally a crisis of education. 
And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, we have underfunded education for decades, and we now have a population that doesn't understand a threat to democracy when they see it. Let me just follow up on that, since you are a professor of journalism as well mm-hmm. as a as well as a writer as well as a journalist, mm-hmm. which is you say that you know white nationalism is now part of the political conversation. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been normalized in some way because it has a home in one of our two political parties and it mm-hmm. has a home in the White House. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question for you is how you think the press should deal with that. Um, every time someone like Richard Spencer, uh, who I'm sure people here know who he is appears on TV, there's kind of this debate. Should we be giving people like this? He's the guy that gets punched in his face a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a debate about, you know, should he be interviewed? Should we mm-hmm. be talking about him? Should we be listening to this guy? And I, I'm wondering how you think journalists should deal with this, because it is a reality at the same time you are giving airtime and in a way normalizing this really toxic set of beliefs. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, there's a responsible and an irresponsible way of doing it. And I think that what's, what we've seen is, uh, for a large part, been the more irresponsible side of it. Uh, and even that just kind of figures like, uh, like Spencer. But even if you saw last weekend when Brian Stelter had Kellyanne Conway on and he announced that she was going to be a guest and Twitter lost its mind. <laughs> You know, raising a question of why do you give a forum to someone who is going to give, you know, essentially disinformation to the public. Uh, and I think, that, you know, when you look at how, um, you know, the media engaged with, with Joseph McCarthy, who is the, I think the closest political analog to, to Donald Trump, uh, a, a great deal of it early on was irresponsible, just kind of printing what he said or realizing that even people who knew that he was, uh, you know, a serial liar, uh, would nonetheless recognize that they were selling papers if they put them on the the cover um, of their their issue. If they put a quote from him, people would come out and buy it. But you can also say that televising the Army McCarthy hearings uh, was part of what brought McCarthy down. That the media played a role in exposing him for exactly what he was. And I think that that kind of media coverage is crucial and important. We haven't seen enough of it. And we've seen even CJR, um, Columbia Journalism Review did an interesting um, piece not long ago about whether or not you should call Trump a liar, whether or not you should call him racist. Uh, and whether, you know, press should say that. And I think that there has to be a high bar for those things. Uh, but he, through diligent effort, <laughs> and you remember in elementary school where teachers say, we really want you to apply yourself, you know, he has earned, he's met that bar, I think. So let, let me ask you this then. Um, when you think about racial issues in America going forward, we've, we've obviously had a country with many racial problems mm-hmm. for a very long time. What we haven't had in recent history is a country, we have a two-party system where one party is really devoted to a sort of white nationalist Mm -hmm. philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what effect you think over time, I know everybody's feeling good today or people in this hall are feeling good today about the election. And Ed Gillespie ran this very racially charged campaign that ended up coming, coming up short. But what does it mean to have a party that's going to take this on? Republicans have always used racially charged mm-hmm. ads. Even some Democrats have. But what does it mean to, that it's really going to have a home in one of the two political parties for, for American racism? Yeah. I mean, so one, it's like not, we've not had an explicitly white nationalist party. You know, but for everyone who's behaving as if they're, they're stunned by Charlottesville, uh, these people were going back to their districts and talking to people 
And they were getting feedback from their constituents. They knew that this thing was out there, that it was animate, that it was growing. They just thought that they could always keep it under control. Uh, and then it kind of broke away from the shackles and became something they couldn't control. And now it controls them. And looking at this, you're going, um, you know, what's the next reasonable um, expectation for this? Like, where, do, where would a group like this go from here? Especially given the fact that demographically, the causes of their concern are becoming more prominent, more prevalent. You know, the country is becoming more brown, not more white. Uh, that the economic issues, especially the uh, uh, evisceration um, of the uh, industrial sector in this country, uh, that is beginning more, becoming more pronounced. And uh, the issues around automation are going to replace the issues of uh, exporting jobs and so on. We, and this is like, I hate to kind of break down the high that everyone's on. We are looking at a really long-term trend. This is something that we're going to have to, I don't think that it's something that can't be defeated, but we should not take any uh, um, comfort in the idea that it's somehow or another limited to Trump. Uh, even if Mueller came up with uh, the definitive dossier, you know, that we have the actual P-tape. <laughs> um, and we have, uh, you know, Trump. Don't look at me. You... <laughs> Uh, that would just be, I, I swear I would write that story. I would just like, just please let me write the P-tape story. Um, but no matter what Robert Mueller came up with, we should not uh, comfort ourselves with the illusion that the uh, phenomenon of Trumpism is entirely dependent upon Trump. The circumstances that he saw and that he seized upon will still continue to exist. Just to bring this to Obama for a second, I think there was a sense when Obama was elected that um, demographics were going in the Democrats' favor, that mm -hmm. the country was changing, you know, that we'd sort of passed out of this time. When you, when, which obviously turned out to be wrong and was probably mm -hmm. way overly simplified at the time. When you think back to Obama's election now and what it meant for the country, w w what in hindsight... 10 months into the Trump administration, how, how do you look at it differently? Um, one, I think it's a lot easier to be um, forgiving of Obama because you recognize what came after him. Um, and you're saying that this person, when we think about this, I'm not sure if it's a greater honor to be elected president than it is a disrespect to be succeeded by the man who forced you to show your birth certificate to prove you were a citizen. And in the balance of those two things, I'm not sure. Um, and so as o Obama, as somebody who's kind of a congenital optimist about race, I think largely because he grew up in Hawaii um, with, with white grandparents, uh, but for, I think, African-Americans at large who are probably more skeptical to pessimistic about this, it really is painful to see that optimism foiled in a particular way. Uh, and to say, like, this person who actually gave us this hope and faith that things could actually radically be different. And I'm not abandoning that. I'm not saying that it was all for naught. But for us to recognize that we're talking about net progress, not absolute progress, that we hope that after whatever this debacle is, is over, that there will be some element 
of what Obama represented that still gives us a net positive. When you hear Obama speak today, I mean, he's not speaking that often or releasing, you know, Twitter statements Mm -hmm, or Facebook mm -hmm. statements, and they, they kind of come they come packaged the way his words always come packaged. Mm-hmm. They're optimistic, they're mm-hmm. classy, you know, whatever word you want to use. When, when I read them sometimes, it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel quite right. And I don't know mm-hmm. exactly why that is, but it, it somehow feels like with the time we're living in, it, it somehow feels too optimistic to me or just not the right tone. Do you ever feel that way or do you feel differently? I felt that way during his presidency. You know, what we were kind of saying, but bear in mind, I was, um, I always say I'm a mixed race. I was raised by an Alabama Negro and a Georgia Negro. Um, <laughs> and so, but what they taught me about the South was like the very hard edged realism of race. Like the reason both of them had fled the South and there were ugly biographical stories that connected to the ugly historical narratives that we know. And that was what I um, grew up with. And so I would hear Obama and say, I'm sorry, but I don't think you're entirely cognizant of what these people will do to stop you. Um, and I felt bad about that because it's kind of pessimistic or at least skeptical. But as time went on, you started saying, well, you know, these are the things that that happen as a result of this. And so as a result of the kind of when black people stake a claim for equality in America, there's always a counterclaim, um, always. And we were maybe naive to think that there wouldn't be a kind of equal and opposite push. Do you think then, I mean, you said that you think Obama's thinking on this in some sense comes from his background growing mm-hmm. up in Hawaii, white grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think that the the sort of the kind of take he had on these issues was determined by that, or do you think that it was also the way that he felt that he had to what he had to say to succeed politically that he had to adopt? Yeah, I think he actually I think he actually believed that when you talked about his rationale for running, he said that um, you know he wanted it to be you know established for young people of color that they could do anything that they wanted in life. Uh, and when he stood up and said in 2004, there's not a black America or a white America, there's the United States of America, that was a lie. That was a damn lie. There was a black America, there was a white America, there was a Latino America, there was a, a gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender America, there was uh, a, a poor America, there was an overly incarcerated America, and then there was an America that was represented by over... Um, excessive access to all resources in overclass and that those realities like you can't paper over them because they're actually part of the the political terrain that we're operating in but people in in the united states also have a kind of aspirational ideal of ourselves that we want to think of ourselves as better than our history and he tapped into that powerfully and um, effectively and at the end of the day maybe um, that renegade hope that he offered us, maybe that kind of um, faith, uh, impermeable faith uh, and the possibility of a better tomorrow, maybe that's what we fall back upon to sustain ourselves in the midst of what we're in now. Uh, well, I think we got everyone depressed again, so that's good. Um, Thank you. I, uh, I'm really good at that, so if you're ever feeling good, just give me a call. I'll mess up your day. Uh, Thank you, Jelani Cobb. Thank you. (laughs) 
And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. And one more thing. Check out If Then, a new Slate podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Aramis bring you tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job. With newsmaking interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, they explore not only how the technology that's shaping our world works, but the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. And guess what? They don't always agree. Subscribe to If Then wherever you get your podcasts.